You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, Jonathan McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have SSE, BHP Billiton, Royal Mail, EasyJet, Beasley, and our US company of the week is Coca-Cola. Sam, do you want to kick off with SSE? Yes. So SSE, who, for anyone who don't know, are the utility company. They've released a trading statement ahead of their AGM, and they've said that total renewables output has fallen to 1,674 gigawatts in the three months to 30 June 2021, down from 1,962 gigawatts last year. And that's well below the target of 2,077 gigawatts, and that reflects unfavorable weather conditions. Gas output fell 9% year over year to 3,751 gigawatts, which the group puts down to plant availability and market conditions. Electricity distribution rose 13% to 8.7 terawatts. The group continues to make substantial investment in its renewable and transmission business with planned capital expenditure this financial year of around 2 billion. That will be funded in part by the disposal of non-core assets with SSE completing the sale of its contracting business at the end of June and planning to sell its UK gas network by the end of the calendar year. SSE has reported a 1% increase in full year operating profit to 1.5 billion and that's after COVID reduced operating profits by 170 million, which is at the lower end of the guidance range. Underlying earnings per share rose 5% to 87.5p. SSE is not providing detailed guidance for next year, but expects the enterprise and business energy divisions to incur the bulk of the ongoing coronavirus costs. Underlying profit at the networks division fell 15% to 488.2 million. Operating profit at the SSEN distribution fell 25% to 267.3 million, primarily reflecting lower volumes from non-households. Underlying operating profit at the renewables division rose from 567.3 million to 731.8 million. This included 226 million from the sale of 51% of the Sea Green offshore wind farm and 10% of the Dogger Bank farms. Excluding this contribution, operating profit fell due to a 10% decrease in output from disposals and adverse weather, partially offset by higher prices and plant availability. Thermal generation reported a 5% increase in underlying operating profit to 160.5 million. Higher utilization and asset sales entirely offset the impact of a one-off restatement in the prior year. Adjusted net debt and hybrid capital fell from 10.5 billion to 8.9 billion, reflecting ongoing asset sales and adjustments, partially offset by ongoing investment. Net debt is now 4.6 times cash profits within the group's 4.5 to 5 target range. In terms of the valuation, the company trades at a PE of about 17 and has a prospective dividend yield over the next 12 months of 5.6 percent what do you think about that in terms of valuation because price to earnings of 17 for a utility company sort of stands out as quite high i think the dividend yield is probably the most important anyway yeah because it's an income play but i 
that that'll be i think because it's a trading statement so the mm. where i've got the pe from it's not been updated to reflect those oh, results I okay i've not i've not bothered working it out just because yeah. it is really the the dividend yield that's probably more important yeah there are a couple of other interesting things. So they're now operating through two main divisions, which is the networks division that delivers electricity to homes and the mm. renewable energy division. And renewables made up 49% of operating profits last year, but the plan is to treble output by 2030. So 30 terawatts mm. a year, terawatt hours a year, which is enough to power Scotland. What are your thoughts then on these results and the company? I don't know. I, I'd be slightly concerned about the renewables in the sense that you see how weather can impact on them. I suppose as an industry, I think that the fact that there's so much regulation is a bit off-putting. And, you know, you've got the in the UK or certainly in England, you've got the energy price cap that the government introduced a few years ago. I think that would be a worry, especially when you're investing a lot of money in terms of like capital expenditure on renewables but i don't know i probably would be a bit wary of it i think if i were looking for an income play there would be things that might be potentially less regulated and have arguably equally reliable income streams it's got a i suppose a fair bit of debt although i guess the revenue is you know should be as a utility company fairly reliable it certainly looks healthier than Centrica, which we we've covered, you know, we've we've covered on the show before. But it's probably one that I wouldn't be looking at in too much more detail at the moment, really. What what are your thoughts? I don't like it. I I think the debt is at the very very top of what you what I'd consider a manageable mm. level, and yeah. the fact that the dividend's so high, the yeah. debt really that could. I think that debt could actually impact yeah. the ability to pay the dividend at some point. And if they yeah. want to treble renewables, that's going to be a lot of capital expenditure that's needed. So I, yeah. I don't see the debt going down anytime soon. So I just think, you know, if the yield's that high, yeah, that to me suggests that the market thinks it might be unsustainable. And I think yeah. that they're probably right. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, you know, if you've got the script dividend going as well, that's making it easier for them to pay it but it's obviously not sustainable mm. yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah yeah it's the debt really i think i'd i'd probably like it more if they actually just came out and cut the dividend and said well we we want yeah. renewables to be driving the business going forward and we've got to invest in that yeah I, I don't really like the fact that they're just trying to carry on the dividend and just piling it up with debt yeah i mean i suppose you might <laughs> You might see a short-term fall in the share price if they do that on the basis that that's what people are buying it for. But yeah, it would make that it could make the business healthier. And you've seen the big, you know, the big players, obviously not just sort of utility, but sort of energy companies like your BPs and your Shells cutting the dividend. Yeah, and I think as well, like the last eighteen months was probably a really good opportunity to <laughs> yeah. cut the dividend without getting yeah. the normal adverse yeah. reaction that you'd expect. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Everything. Covid and uh, yeah, yeah they they could have cut the dividend and got away with it. Whereas, like you say, yeah. if they do it now, it's, it's not yeah. going to be looked on favourably by the market. Yeah, but no, I don't think one for me, and by the sounds of it, not for you either. No. Okay, so on to BHP, which is UK listed on FTSE 100, and it's the world's largest miner. They had their half year results out this week, and 
half year profits came in at $3.9 billion compared with $4.9 billion last year. And the decline reflects non-cash charges relating to the reduction in the value of the coal assets, as well as the costs associated with COVID and the Samarco dam failure. Excluding these items on an underlying basis, BHP actually made a $6 billion profit compared with $5.2 billion last year. And that was thanks to the increase in commodity prices, which we'll go on to discuss. In terms of their copper division, or I suppose copper price, but copper division, cash profits rose by rose from $1.4 billion to $3.7 billion as a result of the higher copper prices. And if we actually look at the unit costs for, from Escondia, which is BHP's largest mine, they fell, the unit costs fell by 18% to 0.9, so 90 cents essentially uh, per pound of cof- copper. And full year guidance for the unit costs of copper is between $1 and $1.25. And the current pro- copper price is currently $4.34 a pound. In terms of iron ore, cash profits rose from $3.1 billion to $10.2 billion, again reflective of the higher prices combined with record production at the Western Australia iron ore mine. Unit costs in iron ore rose 10% to $14.38 per tonne, with the expectation of them being between $13 and $14 for the full year. And spot price for iron ore at time of recording was $214. In coal, there was actually a loss of $201 million compared with an $898 million profit last year, which was down to lower prices, lower volumes and unit costs rising by 20% in Queensland. All of this resulted in $5.2 billion in free cash flow after capital expenditure of $3.6 billion and a 7% reduction in net debts down to $11.8 billion. Currently, BHP has a market cap of just over $114 billion. Its prospective dividend yield is nearly 6% and the group targets paying 50% of their earnings as a dividend. In terms of price to earnings, it's currently around the 17 mark. Sam, what do you think of BHP? I mean, they're very good results. You'd expect very good results given what's happened to the prices of the commodities. I mean, there's actually, there's a little, uh, there's a little table where they've given the prices for the June 21 half versus the June 20. And the average price for oil is 68% higher. Natural gas, 29% higher. Copper, 82%. Iron ore, 106%. Nickel, 41%. And then obviously that's taking like the best comparison. But even if you compare full year 21 versus full year 20, oil's up 6%, natural gas 8%, copper 52%, iron ore 69%, and nickel 17%. So they've got a big boost from that. I'd say a PE of 17 is quite expensive for such a cyclical business at what could be the top of the cycle i know if we like go into a more inflationary environment it's the sort of thing you'd want to hold but if we don't get an inflationary environment it looks quite expensive to me yeah i, I would probably have, you know maybe been a little bit more bullish on it i don't think it's at, at 17 
in the current environment, it is all that expensive. But yeah, I think if you were to buy the company, you would, or any miner, you'd expect volatility. And I think certainly it's in a much healthier state than it was I guess back in 2008. And they've got, I think, a more sustainable dividend policy going forward. I've held it in the past. I probably regret selling it. I had it, I think, back in 2017 when it was about eight pounds or 2016 when it was about eight pounds a share. I sold it for about 13.50. And uh, I think it's about 22. Um, and I'd have got a dividend through those years as well. But I do, I mean, I, ha- I have um, a commodities index in the portfolio for the exposure to this. But of course, the commodities themselves don't pay you a dividend like the HP does, especially when it's, you know, in the current state and doing well. But uh, yeah, with all of these, all of the miners, you're going to ex- you're going to expect the um, it, it to be cyclical. And if you're not prepared for that sort of volatility, maybe you wouldn't be comfortable holding it or you'd hold it as part of an index maybe but I guess it probably does depend on where you see the commodity prices going in the short term if you were to, if you were buying shares I mean we'd obviously say buy for the long term and yeah I know you've, you've, you've pointed out that you think 17 where where you think we might be in the cycle is relatively high yeah I just think with something like that it's probably like I don't know where we are in the cycle, but we're more likely to be towards the top than the bottom. I think the time mm. to buy it is probably, you know, in a situation like you did, where it's much closer to the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair enough. And if you were to ask me, would I be buying it now? I guess I've got that sort of psychological hangover from when I owned it before, and I knew what I paid for it then. But obviously things were much more torrid for the company at the time and the prices aren't what they are now and the com- the company is in a much healthier state so you're not you're not buying the same thing and that shouldn't now influence me as to whether I buy it at the current price but yeah I, I do hear what you're saying but you know you'd, if you were to look if you were to compare it with something else you know let's say the S&P 500 you'd have probably said for I don't know the last five years that you think we're at the top of the cycle things are overvalued and then five years later you find that the S&P it, it doubled or more than doubled um, yeah so it, it is very difficult to predict where we are in the cycle but regardless if you were to buy it you'd be buying it you should be buying it for the long term but I yeah it's debatable I think as to whether at the price earnings of 17 it's expensive or not where you know given where we are and given what the prices are as well and I mean, you see, what, what did I say earlier? You know, copper is currently costing them less than a pound, uh, less than a dollar per pound to produce, and the current price is over four dollars. And yeah, I mean, it, it's ginormous. And again, if you look at iron ore, iron ore per unit, they're looking at thirteen to fourteen dollars a ton, and that's selling for over two hundred dollars. It's not bad. Uh, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. So uh, it's certainly, yeah, I'd certainly rather buy uh, BHP at, at that at the current price than uh, SSE. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. But I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That's, uh, yeah, we're not comparing everything we consider investing with SSE. And that doesn't make the, necessarily make the case for investment. But yeah. Okay. So is it one is it one that you'll watch or I mean what what do you think in terms of exposure to commodities and it's, would you would you buy a company or would you buy an index? I'd say where my portfolio is at the minute and how like early on I am as an investor I'd be more likely to buy a company. 
I think okay. later on with a larger portfolio, I'd be more inclined to buy uh, like a like a tracker fund for it. But it's just because I guess with a company, it's going to be more volatile. But you you could probably do better. Yeah, I, I yeah yeah, and you'd see you? that with the well. No, I I think that that's true, and I wouldn't be. I, I'm definitely well. I've got a commodities index as part of the portfolio, which is not doing obviously. I was going to say not doing badly. It's doing very well um, with commodity prices increasing. But I think you do get in the long term, you get a better return with a decent mining company. Yeah. So it may be one that I look at whether I buy now or whether I buy in the future, but just need to get over that psychological hurdle. I'll just pick a different miner. <laughs> or I'll pick a different miner. Well, I, was, I, I, I nearly, well, at the time, I nearly bought Rio Tinto as well. But anyway, we, we, won't, we won't go down that path. Okay, on to, well, perhaps a less healthy company, Royal Mail, Sam. Yes, so Royal Mail have come out with a trading statement and they've reported first quarter revenue growth of 12.5% compared to a year ago. And that's up 20.2% compared to 2019. That reflects growth across both the Royal Mail and GLS divisions with GLS being the delivery on the parcel delivery side, despite a slowdown in UK parcels. The outlook for the group remains uncertain and will depend on the future course of the pandemic. As things stand, the group expects revenue growth at GLS to slow as the year progresses, as lockdown restrictions ease across its footprint and the division laps stronger comparators. Royal Mail reported 12.2% growth year on year and a 13.4% increase compared to 2019. That reflects a rebasing in parcel volumes, which are down 13% year on year, but still 19% ahead of pre-pandemic levels. Despite lower volumes, parcel revenues grew 3.4% year on year as customers shifted towards higher priced products. Address letter volumes rose 22% year on year, although the long-term decline continued with an 18% fall from pre-pandemic levels. Total letter revenues rose 25.7% year on year. The GLS International Business reported 12.4% revenue growth year on year and 36.6% growth compared to the pre-pandemic. Volumes increased 10 and 34% respectively. As well as higher volumes, the group benefited from improved, improved prices and higher freight rates, boosted by the reopening of retail outlets. In terms of valuation, the company trades at a PE ratio of 9.2, and that compares to an average ratio since listing of 12.6. And it has a prospective dividend yield in the next 12 months at 3.9%. So I've mentioned investment in parcels infrastructure is set to rise with capital expenditure expected to be well over 400 million next year in the UK alone and construction of a new fully automated parcels hub in the Midlands is underway which will be capable of sorting over a million parcels a day by 2023 and at the moment only 33% of UK parcels are sorted by machine versus an industry benchmark of 90% and it's worth mentioning as well, these are very good results. My issue is the long-term decline of the letters side of the business. We had a similar thing when we looked at Deutsche Post a few months ago. Now, Deutsche Post, or just for some comparison, they don't actually split it out. You have to go in and find it a bit, really. But if you go into the 1920 results, parcels made up, 47.9% of UK PIL revenue and letters 52.1%. 
total group revenue was 10.44 billion. So using that, I worked out the letters make up 37% of the overall revenue, which is much higher than Deutsche Post's figure. I only had a quick look, so I couldn't find the exact figure, but Deutsche Post's domestic post and parcels business is only 33% of revenue. So mm. it's going to be even smaller than that. I, I don't, as a guess, I'd maybe say, you know, 15 to 20% for Deutsche Post and Deutsche Post is actually declining slower. So Deutsche, Deutsche Post is declining slower as well. So it was, it was down 4% last year. And that compares with, compared to pre-pandemic levels, Royal Mail's down 18%. So it is cheaper than Deutsche Post at 9.2. I've not looked at it since we last covered it, but Deutsche Post was at a P of about 15. I'd rather pay up for Deutsche Post. And as well as the letters business, I mean, Deutsche Post DHL site is just a much stronger business as well. Mm. So with that slightly leading mm. monologue, what are your yeah. thoughts on this trading <laughs> um, statement? And right so I, thought, I thought the results were quite good. I d- would have... Yeah, some reservations about Royal Mail as a company. And I suppose it's it's very highly unionized, which I think if you're an investor is probably something that's quite concerning. It also, with the letters business, it does have the universal delivery obligation as well. So it can't, you know, it's not easy to cut off places that really are, you know, are not profitable. That's something else. I think there are two things. We didn't talk about it, but it does have quite a large pension deficit I believe I haven't looked at it recently and that might be something that we could revisit and yeah I suppose there is that natural decline in letters and how dependent are Royal Mail on that and can they replace it with the growth of the parcels division and like you say I mean just mentioning Deutsche Post it's a very competitive area in the market for parcels and I appreciate Royal Mail have been sort of doing relatively well out of it but will they be able to continue that going forward especially with such a unionized workforce when its competitors don't have those i suppose those issues in making themselves potentially more competitive the other thing i'd point out is that perhaps if you looked at it in at various points probably in the last couple of years it's potentially been more undervalued i think the fact that it's had these good results and the numbers have been making the i suppose the case for investment it's you know in the last year it's up nearly three times which i think i don't know how much value there is to be had when you've got potentially better competitors which would have i would think like you've just outlined a stronger investment case would you in fact let's get the i'll just check the deutsche post pe yeah finance have it at a pe of 19 now quite expensive it looks like it's had a nice little run since we covered it (laughs) <laughs> influence the market yeah we'll have to watch that yeah. in the future but yeah so it's actually now at 19 so that does change it slightly because Deutsche Post yeah. is definitely more expensive my view is I'd still rather pay 19 for Deutsche Post than 9 mm. for Royal Mail what about yeah. you? I, I would yeah I would say so I think it'd have I think Royal Mail would have to be cheaper still for me to be interested and I don't particularly like it as a company so I wouldn't be investing in it myself yeah Okay, should we move okay. on to another company you probably won't be investing in then? <laughs> well, yeah, it's EasyJet, the FTSE 100 low-cost airline. They had a quarterly trading update out this week, with the group reporting a pre-tax loss of £318 million in the three months to the June the 30th, which is actually an improvement on the £346.8 million loss in the same period last year. 
revenue of 212.9 million was up from 7.2 million in 2020, uh, reflecting an increase in both passengers and ancillary revenue of 61 million pounds. There was an increase in the per passenger spend on extras like extra baggage allowance and premium seating options. Um, the resumption in some flights led to a rise in headline costs to 531.2 million pounds from the 354 million pounds in 2020. And the group also paid 122 billion pounds in refunds to customers. The total cost of the pandemic refunds now stands at £1.2 billion for EasyJet, and the group flew 3 million passengers during the period with a capacity of 4.5 million, which, if you compare it with 2019, is only 17%. And even taking that into account uh, with the reduced capacity, only 49% of the group's schedules had actually been booked compared with 65% of a much larger capacity in 2019. However, EasyJet do note that customers are booking closer to the departure dates than previously with a changing of restrictions. So almost hopefully the, uh, hopefully the numbers won't be as quite as bad as they seem going forward. But I think I'm, I'm yet to be convinced on that. EasyJet have now reduced their fleet by 10% over the course of the pandemic and their cost saving program is expected to deliver 500 million pounds of savings, half of which are thought to be sustainable when conditions return to normal. Going forward, the group will be taking delivery of new, more efficient aircraft from the autumn, growing their fleet to 317 by 2022. As it stands, EasyJet have access to 2.9 billion in cash and loans, and will have to pay back 300 million pounds in government loans by November, but remaining payments, uh, repayments come in 2023. Total cash burn during the quarter was £55 million, with capital expenditure and fixed costs coming in at £34 million per week on average, which that's actually slightly less than the market was expecting, £40 million, but I mean, it's, it's not great. In terms of the valuation, the price to book stands at 1.8 compared with a 10-year average of 2.16. In terms of its market cap, it's currently £3.7 billion. Sam, EasyJet, what do you think of these numbers? Are they as bad as they seem? I mean, they're pretty bad. I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter to me, you know, if they're increasing or not. It's just not the business I'd want to touch at the moment. I don't think they could have, the numbers would have had to be really outstanding for me to really be interested. It's not an industry I particularly like. Pre-pandemic, I don't understand why anyone would want to own it mm. what about you uh, yeah i i really do struggle to find any sort of investment case for easyjet i mean maybe you could have had well speculated a little bit you know immediately after covid and said oh well it's is it undervalued or could it rebound but i mean i i think it would be really pure speculation on that front and yeah it's it's not I wasn't interested pre-pandemic. I'm not interested now. I mean, hope, hopefully for EasyJet, they will recover. But I think there are so many question marks over it. And I think they, the group would probably have hoped that this summer there'd have been more freedom in terms of the travel. But 
with rules changing all the time and the uncertainty about tests, COVID passports, everything, I can't imagine the rest of the year's results are going to be all that good. And especially given that summer is the season where they make most of the money, I wouldn't be all that optimistic. I don't think it was like that attractive a business before the pandemic either. So considering (laughs) how much risk is baked into them, just getting back to where they were and back to where they were, it wasn't a great (laughs) business to start with. Uh, no, so I just don't know uh, why you'd why you'd want to sign yourself up for that ride. No, no. <laughs> I would I would agree with you there. I would agree with you there. And I think if we if we do compare it pre pandemic, shares were about f- around the fifteen pound mark, and they're now eight pounds. They did drop as low as sort of four, but yeah, I it's not one I'm interested in. And by the sounds of it, you're not either. I don't Definitely think it's not. even it's, it's not making the watch list. Um, no. <laughs> don't think it would have done before, but it's certainly not now. Okay. Any more to be said? I don't think so. We could criticise no. it a bit more, but what? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, what were the? Yeah, it's uh, it's having a torrid enough time already. Beasley Group. Yeah, so Beasley Group. For anyone who doesn't know, they are uh, FTSE two fifty listed insurer. So. I'll just read quickly from their website. Um, Beasley is a proud participant in the Lloyds market, the largest and oldest insurance market in the world. Through the Lloyds broker network and the market's trading licenses, we are able to access a wide range of insurance and reinsurance businesses from around the world. Our client base is broadly diversified by type, by size, and by geography. Our clients are leaders in many of the markets in which they operate. Over three decades, Beasley has evolved from a specialist Lloyd syndicate transacting business exclusively from the Beasley box in Lloyd's in London to a global insurer with offices in Europe, Asia, and across North America. So they have come out with their half-year results to 30 June 2021, and they have returned to profit, delivering 22% revenue growth. So they report all their figures in dollars, and they've announced profit before tax of 167.3 million, and that compared with a loss of 13.8 million for the half last year. Return on equity of 15%, and that compared with a loss of 1% last year. Global premiums written increased by 22% to 2.035 billion, and that increased from 1.664 billion last year. They've announced prior year reserves releases of 95.7 million, and that compares to 58.6 million a year ago. They've announced net investment income of 83.6 million, and that compares to 83.2 million a year ago. And there will not be a dividend, and there was also not a dividend last year. Adrian Cox, the CEO, has said Beasley's gross premiums written increased by 22% to 2.035 billion with all divisions achieving rate rises in the first six months of 2021. Reserve releases across all divisions supported a half-year combined ratio of 94%, and the investment return achieved was also strong at 1.2% year-to-date. I'm excited about the growth opportunities ahead. Our capital base remains strong, and we are well-placed to support an ambitious growth plan at similar levels to 2021. The board remains committed to a dividend payment, and will consider this at year-end after taking into account the 2021 results as a whole. Interestingly, so the valuation is not really that helpful because they don't have a PE ratio because these are only for the six-month results and for the year last year they had a loss. If you were to take the 2019 earnings and treat that as normalised earnings, you'd get a PE ratio of 11, 
However, because they are an insurer, the historic earnings per share have been very lumpy. Mm. So just to go through them, 2016 to 2020 inclusive, 48.6 cents a share, 25 cents a share, 13 cents a share, 44.6 cents a share, and an 8 cents a share loss. So I'd be very, very hesitant before I used that as a normalized PE ratio. I don't know if you'd, you'd probably, you'd possibly be better taking an average of the five mm. years maybe instead. If you look at the revenue growth, which is maybe a better metric of how the business is doing, revenue increased from 2.195 billion in 2016 to 3.563 billion in 2020. However, my reservation with that is the thing with being an insurer is you can write insurance at any price so you can almost increase your revenue by will if you want and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're writing good insurance mm, yeah i've seen nothing to suggest this is a bad company but for me it just goes in the too hard pile i just find it too yeah. difficult to value to be honest yeah it, i mean it'd be interesting to compare it perhaps even you know on the 2020 year with other insurers to see how it, you know, in terms of the loss that it suffered, how big that loss was, and whether that's, you know, like you say, reflective of different policies that have been written. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult to understand. It sounds like it's probably not too expensive at the moment, but it is difficult difficult to analyse, really. So, yeah, it's I'd, prob- I'd probably be in the same boat with you there, Sam. It reminds me of something Adam Mead said in his interview. He's talking about banking, but he said, you know, anyone can loan money, the keys to get it back. And it's yeah. it's quite similar in insurance where anyone can write insurance. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you'll have written it profitably. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. You need to have, uh, well, good management and good actuaries to, to do it. Yeah. And it's just... Yeah, it's just not really within my circle of competence to be analysing yeah. insurers, to be honest. Yeah. Um, no, fair enough. Still look, they look like good results on the surface, at least. Anyway. Yeah, and the shares responded well as well. So Yeah. Okay, on to a business that is easier to understand, and that is our US company of the week, Coca-Cola. They have their second quarter trading update, and... In fact, I'll just give a bit a bit of background to Coca-Cola. So obviously they have the, the famous Coke brands. They do have another of, number of other drinks in the portfolio. So if we look beyond Coke, they also own Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Fanta, Lilt, Smart Water, Vitamin Water, Oasis, the Sweps portfolio, Appletizer, Innocent Smoothies, Powerade, Aquarius, Fuse Tea, and Costa Coffee. So that that's just, we're, we're talking about Coke, but that, that's the portfolio that they own. So yeah, their, tra- their second quarter trading update, organic revenue rose 37% to $10.1 billion, with a 26% increase in concentrate sales and an 11% increase due to increased pricing and product mix resulting in a 46% increase in underlying profits to $3 billion. And if we break those results down further, in Europe, the Middle East, and the Africa division, that saw revenue rise by 61% to $2 billion, with particular growth in Russia, Spain, Germany, Nigeria, Turkey, and Pakistan. Operating profits were up 56% to $1.1 billion with a 21% growth in volumes, favorable pricing, product mix, 
and timing of the concentrate sales. In Latin America, revenue was up 39% to $1.1 billion, with profits up from $504 million to $678 million, with strong growth in Brazil and Mexico, particularly of the sparkling soft drinks and hydration drinks. In North America, revenue rose 28% to $3.4 billion, with profits up 47% to $950 million, with away from home sales rebounding and the recovery of the fountain drinks, so sort of drinks from dispensers also. In Asia Pacific, revenue was up 21% to $1.5 billion, and profits came in at $766 million, which was a 10% rise. In the global ventures division, which includes Costa Coffee retail stores, reported a revenue of 707 million and brought in a profit of $75 million, compared with a $102 million loss in 2020 when things were closed. In bottling investments division, they reported a 29% increase in revenue to $1.7 million billion dollars, sorry, with growth in India and South Africa. Profits came in at $92 million compared with $12 million the previous year. And overall net debt for Coca-Cola stood at $30.7 billion, which was down from $34.2 billion at the start of last year, which works out at roughly 2.7 times 2020 cash profits. Free cash flow was $5.1 billion dollars which is an increase of $2.8 billion compared with 2020. In terms of valuation, Coke has a market cap of around $240 billion. Price to earnings is currently around 20, 24.4, 10-year well, average of 20.8, and the prospective dividend yield is around 3%. And over the past five years, Coke has returned over 30% in share price growth and that's excluding dividends. Sam, what do you think of these results in Coke as a company? I think they're very good results. I think interestingly, they probably bode very well for Coca-Cola HBC, which we've looked at before. They said that Nigeria grew and that's one of the areas operated by Coca-Cola HBC, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it is. It is. So it'll be interesting to see if that comes through in their results as well, which I'd expect it would. In terms of Coke, I think they're fantastic results. <laughs> There's not, I mean, yes, I mean, yeah, they, just, they are really, really impressive figures. I think it's, I really like the company. I am not too concerned. So the debt's actually only 2.7, 2020 cash profits. So it's, it's not really that high. I don't think I, I think they can more than afford to pay that. My only issue is, is a P of 24.4. We looked at Pepsi last week and that was only a P of 23. As much as I like Coke and the business, I don't know why you wouldn't choose Pepsi over Coke when the, the PE is lower. And I think you're probably getting a more diversified investment because of the snacks. Yeah. What about yeah. you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like Coke as a company. I mean, I think it's got some incredible brands and the profits margins are huge. They're, I think, around 60%, sometimes higher. But yeah, it's, it, it's certainly not cheap as a company to buy but i guess when you've got a company this high quality it's never going to be cheap in terms of the comparison with pepsi yeah i think pepsi it's got twice the revenues of coke and it's probably 
more attractive because it's got sort of that diversity and it's got the snacks business. Pepsi, probably not the as strong a brand as Coke and it's you know it is it always second to Coke but because it's got that diversity it probably would be the company that I prefer as an investment but I like them both and you might just, I, I'd be tempted to pay up for, for that quality of company you've got other consumer companies which are, I mean I have in my own portfolio like Unilever and Reckitt but I mean I think and Kraft Heinz for that matter but I think probably Coke and Pepsi are at least on the same level, prob- probably higher in terms of the quality of the brands that they have. I mean, you might say that Coke is the, the, the world's strongest brand. So yeah, it's a great company. I, I probably wouldn't have a, a problem buying either Coke or Pepsi, but if it were between the two, probably probably go for Pepsi. Yeah. Would you, so you, you could have Coke at 24 times earnings. Mm. Would you prefer that? Or Coca-Cola HBC. Coca-Cola HBC currently trades at 27 times earnings, but the half-year results don't come out until 12th of August. And based mm. on this, it looks like they're going to be very, very good. <laughs> yeah, which would I rather? I, I think I, I probably would go for Coke, and I would it would be a buy and forget stock. Um, uh, Coca-Cola HBC. HBC, okay. Because you're what, still getting what, Coke. You just yeah. Get- those countries where you where you potentially get who's going to come from you're getting, yeah 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 like what we say, yeah and what you are paying up for really is the brand yeah so yeah I'd yeah go for it's, HBC. yeah and it, it, it's more expensive it is it is anticipating that higher growth in those markets yeah but based on the results it's going to get it it's going to yeah it, it is yeah yeah well we look forward to covering those results when they do <laughs> yeah. come out so um, of the six companies then that we've covered this week, SSE, BHP, Royal Mail, EasyJet, Beasley, Coca-Cola. If you had to buy one, which one would it be? On the base, on the basis of buying it and holding it forever, I'd probably go for Coca-Cola. And yeah. I, I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't have any sleepless nights. Which, if I were to look at the second company, it would probably be BHP, and you'd be, you'd be prepared for a bumpier ride, I think. Yeah, I'd I'd go for Coca Cola as well for that reason. Okay, well, pretty boring. Li- I'd go little, for, yeah, <laughs> I'd go if Coca Cola HBC was the option, one of the options. You go, I'd go for, for that. that instead. Fair enough. I mean, you pay up a bit more for that higher growth. Yeah, but that PE will come down as soon as those results come out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll watch this space. Well, we've right. got it looks like a bumper week next week, um, so we'll probably divide it over two, but. Thank you for listening this week and we'll see you again next week for some of the big hitters from the FTSE 100. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.